This is a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. G'day, welcome aboard the Starship Zero G, science fiction, fantasy and historical radio for episode number 1159, entitled uh, Supervising the Supers. Our podcast title today is Murder on the Podient Express. And we are getting into full cape mode today. Oh, I'm Rob Jan too, by the way. And me, giving you. <laughs> well, our secret identities were going to remain secret for the whole episode. Uh, we're talking about superheroes and ethics, hmm. uh, which is an ACME panel uh, on Tuesday night at 6.30pm. Right, now, as we all know, superheroes are the cinema and television genre at the moment. And, you know, that The Punisher is dropping on Netflix at the end of the week. And also Justice League going head-to-head. Yeah, that snuck up really quickly. Yeah, it did, didn't it? And we're, we're, still, we're still reverberating with the sound of Molnir from Thor Ragnarok, uh, which is uh, still clocking up the box office out there. And I have heard that Netflix has purchased Miller World, mm. which is a, a whole comic book line written by uh, Mark Miller, who did uh, Kick-Ass and the Kingsman franchise. And whether or not they're going to um, use that as a, you know, just as a source for comic book content of their own, uh, I'm pretty sure they probably will because I, I know they've got a comic book lined up um, with um, Miller and uh, Olivia Cornell, who did House of M and Thor. So they could not only do that, I think that's a, a gangster um, magic fantasy uh, story. So they're going to use that as a, a property to go as a comic book and online on their streaming. Will they try and become a comic book house as big as Marvel and DC? Because those, of course, are owned by... Um, Disney and Warner, respectively. So there's room for another one there, but wow. And I think I read somewhere about how some of those Netflix properties are going to be moved over to a Disney service, and so they might be losing some of their their originals, which is maybe why they're looking to yeah, get their own thing going on. And by their own thing, I mean using other people's IP. <laughs> so, yeah, we're all in this big um, streaming sort of upwelling from the abyss, and it's like, mm. how many streaming services do I have to buy? <laughs> it's like, just to get my Marvel or DC fix. Ah, well, okay. So, that's all happening in the future, but right now we are talking about... Superheroes and Ethics, and we have in the studio today Dr. Liam Burke. Hello, Liam. Hey, how are you doing, guys? And you are the Cinema and Screen Studies Coordinator and Senior Lecturer at the Faculty of Health Arts and Designs, Design from Swinburne University of Technology. That's me. And in your, uh, your alter ego, what is your superhero power? Oh, my superhero power is... Reading lots of comics, uh, watching <laughs> lots of movies, uh, looking for patterns and trends and themes across the breadth of them, and hopefully uh, bringing a bit of critical lens to that kind of stuff and, and synthesizing it down for a 
a wider audience. Oh, okay, we've got a bit of overlap there. We can't all be on the same team, can we? <laughs> <laughs> okay, now we have um, this uh, panel coming up tomorrow night at the Acme at 6.30pm. There are still tickets available. Mm-hmm. And um, I often wonder about superhero ethics. Uh, this is the first thing that I, I, I want to note is that ethics and the law are often confused. Mm. Um, so we also know that many superheroes operate beyond the law as vigilantes. Does this provide a problem for uh, their ethical basis? Yes, and I mean a lot of mileage has been uh, got out of that tension. I mean even just this past year or last year the two big superhero movies were of course Batman v Superman and Captain America's Civil War and their premises were centred around this idea of do we abide by the existing laws in place so Superman and Iron Man would have probably represented that uh, approach or should the superheroes uh, hold themselves to the ideals rather than the given laws or lawmakers of a moment which would have been Batman and Captain America's stance that they should hold themselves to the higher ideals except go outside of society go outside of community to defend it, particularly one that will not defend itself. Oh, you've actually just answered six of my questions there. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Interview over. Okay, yeah, thank that's you. It. Done. Uh, you signed the Sokovian Accords before you came in, I'm assuming. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, um, I was thinking about that. Uh, Superman and Captain America in their respective verses are uh, actually seen as paragons of virtue, the go-to guys for ethics. Mm. And yet that presents us with certain problems, doesn't it? I mean, it's very interesting. I mean, Captain America obviously comes from eugenics in a way. He is genetically enhanced. Superman isn't even human in, in, a, in the most traditional sense of the word. But I think you have to go back to their origins on the page to really understand their their worldview or their changing worldviews because they're rarely consistent. Mm. I mean, when Superman first appeared on the comic book page, it was at the tail end of the Great Depression. He was a welcome escape from that quite uh, dour time. But he wasn't the big blue boy scout we're very familiar with today. He was a social reformer. He went around taking down crooked politicians, uh, wife beaters and things like that. And that would have very much chimed with the spirit of the time, which was a more kind of revolutionary sort of sensibility. Where he becomes the more traditional blue boy scout, the patriot, the the one who not just upholds the ideals, but actually the, the laws of the time, is as you start to move into the Second World War and the rise of fascism in Europe. Because, of course, many people, particularly cultural commentators, parental groups and the like, were worried about comics. They were, before video games, before the web, they were this destructive influence in the life of children. And Superman being the kind of the most popular and the, the gold standard, there was this kind of uh, anxiety that the Superman... Uh, tallied or paralleled very much the sort of misuse of Nietzsche's uh, Ubermensch uh, concept by the the Nazi party. So there was a very uh, conscious decision on the part of the publisher, National Allied Publications, which will become DC Comics, to diffuse that criticism. And the best way they could diffuse that criticism was to soften his more revolutionary or social reformer tendencies and make him the most law-abiding, you know, quasi-deputized upholder of the law. So he throws himself wholeheartedly into the war effort. The comic book covers are filled with patriotic salutes, uh, turning over uh, Nazi tanks, uh, some you know terrible uh, by any standards kind of racial caricaturing, particularly of the Japanese soldiers. But he, 
he becomes very much uh, that paragon of virtue that he has kind of remained to this day. And so, so is Cap as well. Captain America is uh, he's a direct mm-hmm. confrontation of um, the Nazi Superman ethos. Um, I'm wondering why the Nazis, their incredible, hideous propaganda machine, weren't able to come up with a Nazi superhero that was an effective counter to the American. Maybe they were too busy invading everywhere to, to do that, but still. Well, I mean, comic books would have been seen as very much crass commercial American products. And and Captain America in particular, I mean, that famous iconic Captain America number one cover where he socks Hitler on the jaw, that appeared almost a full year before the US entered the war effort following Pearl Harbor. And the reason why comics and comic creators threw themselves into the war effort was comics in America at that time were produced by very young, late teens, early 20s, dirt poor European immigrants, Jewish primarily, uh, first and second generation. So they had a vested interest in trying to change the hearts and minds of America because we kind of assume America was always part of the war effort, but of course they didn't enter the war effort for the first two years. And there was what was called kind of an isolationist tendency. Some felt that it was Europe's war, that it was the problem of kings and queens and dukes and duchess and people in the UK and, and, and why would America crawling out of the depression and get involved in Europe's war? And there was a concerted effort, particularly amongst entertainers, to uh, counteract that, to win the hearts and minds, what would be called an anti-isolationist tendency, because those entertainers tended to be European immigrants or recent European immigrants. So not just in comic books, but in uh, Hollywood as well. A lot of uh, studio heads would have been European immigrants, Jewish immigrants, and so on. So they would have you know, funded films like Mrs. Miniver and others to kind of change the hearts and minds of Americans. And that's also true of comics. There's a wonderful uh, Pulitzer Prize winning novel called <laughs> The Amazing Ventures of Cavalier and Clay by the Jewish American writer Michael Chabon. And I was it, just thinking about that as you were talking about Have it. you read it? Uh, no, I have three copies at home that I'm intending to read. You should read all three of them back to back. It is, a, it is a little long, but what Chabon does really well is he kind of charts this moment. It's, fi- it's a fictitious story, but it draws heavily on the likes of Stan Lee, Bob Kane, uh, Kirby, Jack Kirby, and so on. And it imagines these two young, uh, one's a first generation, one's a recent European immigrant, uh, they're cousins, they're the Cavalier and Clay, and they create this Nazi-smashing icon called the Escapist, who kind of draws heavily on uh, the popularity of escape artists, and uh, he becomes kind of a, a Captain America type. And of course, the criticism of the comics is, oh, they're just escapism, they're ephemeral, they're wish fulfillment, whatever. And the response of one of the creators, the one who comes from uh, Europe directly and whose family are still in Europe, is what seems to be a criticism of them is actually their selling point. The fact that they are escapists, he considers to be wonderful, that they, you could imagine a scenario in which Hitler could be socked in a jaw and Nazi tank could be tor- turned over. But what's very interesting about the book in terms of ethics and things we'll be talking about tomorrow is that as the book progresses, he starts to consider why are they creating another generation that would valorize strength? And the kind of the, the, this sort of ubermensch or overman or superman uh, uh, a figure, and so uh, what seemed quite escapist and sort of uh, fun or carefree uh, 
as it becomes popular, as it becomes it starts gaining a lot of attention, is emulated heavily. Uh, he, he starts to reflect on that, and are they creating another generation of of, of people, particularly young men, who uh, will valorise strength over uh, diplomacy? Well, well, of, of course, the escapism is very important in context of World War Two because comic books were read universally by soldiers in foxholes, mm-hmm. uh, where a bit of escapism is not such a bad thing. Uh, also, um, I was just thinking along the lines of that, this is also where Wonder Woman comes from too, with a, a different strand of, um, of ethics. Can you talk to, talk to that, please? Yeah, so, I mean, definitely uh, servicemen were a huge audience for comic books, not just superhero comics, but you know, funny animal books, horror books, romance books, because uh, it was a, a, a semblance of home front nostalgia. You know, being being back home, it was something they could imagine. It was escapist. It was for color, uh, and that was a huge audience, huh. huge audience for for superheroes. And I mean, what's interesting is how superheroes kind of really fell from popularity post World War Two. There was about a ten year window there where there wasn't they weren't the dominant genre in comics because they were too heavily associated with the war effort and a lot of characters were deemed irrelevant or they bridged up memories and, and so on. So people tended to pivot towards romance books, horror and crime books. But Wonder Woman's origin, I mean, is fascinating. It's more interesting oh. than anything on the page. There's a, <laughs> there's a film just recently released called uh, Professor Marston and, her Wonder, and his Wonder Women, which... From what I've seen so far, seems to take some uh, huge liberties with the story. I would always point people <laughs> to the Jill Lepare book, The Untold uh, History of Wonder Woman. Yeah, excellent book, that. Oh, it's mm. wonderful. And uh, to kind of, I mean, summarise briefly, and it's, 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 it's so interesting, and you couldn't really summarise it all, but... Uh, William Moulton Marston was one of the defenders of comics. So comics, when they emerged, uh, there was a lot of anxiety about what disruptive influence they were having on kids. And so to protect themselves, a lot of comic book publishers would engage psychologists and other uh, credible people. And and, uh, National Allied Publications engaged William Moulton Marston, who was like a pop psychologist, the Dr. Phil of his day. And he wrote a few articles about how comics were good. But he also said... One of the solutions to what he described as the blood-curdling masculinity of comics is to create a female hero with all the power and all the ability of Superman, but with kind of feminine charms. And uh, he was a feminist. He had heard Emmeline Pankhurst speak at Harvard College when he was a student. Uh, he was in a kind of... Uh, a, he, he, he had one wife, but a, a living lover as well. So he had a kind of uh, unconventional relationship. And he had his own magic lasso too. He did. He was the, uh, well, he was the creator of, uh, or at least a version of the lie detector test. So we see that. So a lot of his real life experiences went into that, went into that character. But really what he was trying to do was he was trying to offer a corrective to Superman to take on the boys at their own game. And I mean, it's not, and and Lepore describes it very well. While he had all those, I would say, genuine intentions to create a really rounded character, he also was big into S&M. He enjoyed the more salacious aspects of the character. So Lepore describes it as feminism as fetish. So (laughs) there's a feministic spark there, but there's also a kind of a giddy trill that he takes from that. (laughs) But, you know, that character works quite well. And, of course, she too, even though, like Superman, she's from elsewhere, she, uh, she arrives in America and becomes a patriot very quickly. This is Neil Gaiman in the dangerous alphabet zero, G comes last, Z waits alone and it's not for a thing. 
All right, there we have uh, Dr. Liam Burke here from the ACME panel, Superheroes, Ethics and Justice, which is on ACME tomorrow night at 6.30pm. We've been discussing superhero ethics. Now, you'd think we, would, we, we covered a lot of ground during the Second World War, during the first part of the, uh, the talk here today. Uh, you'd think that um, in the modern-day context, and actually it's hard to recognise the difference because you've... But um, the superhero characters mirroring things that are going on in the real world in the in the uh, 1940s, and we've just come out of a story arc with Marvel where Captain America was a Hydra agent. So our paragon paragon of um, our benchmark of ethical references turned out to be totally wrong and evil. So. They also have run a development there where the U.S. government was taken over by Hydra. And it felt very anti-Trumpian to me. So here we are once again mirroring mm. world events in uh, comics. Is this this like any good science fiction? This is what we do in in the genre. I mean, absolutely. I mean, one of the things that I like about comics as a media studies scholar is unlike a Pulitzer Prize-winning play or an Oscar-winning <laughs> movie that someone has self-consciously produced or a team of people have self-consciously produced across years. Comics in particular, and superhero comics definitely, respond instinctively. They tear from the headlines, which makes them a great kind of cultural and social barometer. You can look back at World War II comics or 1960s comics or comics of today, and you get a better read on the interests, anxieties, and attitudes of a time than you would if you looked at the movies, TV shows, or or indeed, you know, the, the plays or literature. Because there isn't that sort of, not saying that, a lot of thought doesn't go into it, but they have very strict deadlines. We need 13 issues of Captain America a year. You need a villain. You need a veneer of sociopolitical relevance. Well, what's happening in the world? Let's put that in there in some way. And sometimes it's done in a way that is uh, kind of confrontational or that will respond or challenge received views. And other times it's done in a way that's very heavy-handed and almost embarrassing, and you look back and you cringe. But... (laughs) But but that's kind of great in a way because it it feels more authentic as a reflection mm. uh, of uh, of what was happening in a given moment. Well, we've seen a, a blossoming of um, of uh, diverse characters in Marvel, in particular. At the moment, we've got uh, Ms. Marvel. Um, I was going to say Squirrel Girl, who's repre- <laughs> representing the furry community, I suppose. Uh, you know, there's just a, you know, a Captain America, the Falcon, Sam Wilson, an African-American, has been Captain America. Yeah. Uh, it's it's quite laudable, I think. It's, it's, it's like leading a, a wave of social change. I mean, absolutely. I mean, superheroes and comic book superheroes have always reflected what was happening in society, but they have very rarely reflected society. They have tended to be white dudes hmm. and uh, Marvel in particular and DC <coughs> to Iron Fist <laughs> <laughs> well absolutely uh, to a lesser extent have tried to redress that imbalance in the past five years or so and that makes sense because comics despite the fact that they are the basis of a huge number of blockbuster movies and video games and TV shows are a rarefied pastime now not that many people read comics anymore hmm. and those that do uh, tends to survives a niche subculture and people are very kind of tuned in uh, the students of mine who read comics tend to be the most media savvy widely read uh, across a range of you know social justice issues and they're not going to want to just see the same 10 white dudes uh, solving the same crimes that they've been doing for years they want to see 
themselves mm. uh, in these roles. And the thing about superheroes is that they're generational in the sense that you can pass on the mantle. You know, Bruce Wayne will probably always be Batman, but some of the other figures, they can have you know, psychics who graduate to the superhero role or gain their own identities. And so we've started to see that tremendous blossoming, particularly at, at Marvel, where you have you know Miles Morales, Miss Marvel, uh, and a range of other characters who are people of color and uh, you know, different, not just ethnicities, but you know uh, a whole range of, of backgrounds and experiences. Mm. And uh, and that's great about comics. Now, the movies and TV shows haven't caught up. No, um, <laughs> not quite. <laughs> They're still doing that old cast someone white in an Asian role. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, Marvel. You know, most these movies have white guys named Chris in them, and you know, and and, and, and I think the reason is, which is something you point to at the top of the show, which is every major conglomerate, Time Warner, Walt Disney, now Netflix, want comics, not because they want to make comics but they keep comics going as a sort of research and development branch mm. for their larger transmedia endeavours. Comics are particularly cheap to produce. They don't need to sell a lot to make a, a profit or at least you know, break even. So you can try out new characters, new ideas, new concepts, and if they seem to work on the page, well, maybe they'll work as the basis of a movie or a TV show down the line. So we started to see that, that sort of uh, widening of the kind of the demographic of the readership and also the demographic of who's going to get to put on the cape and cowl. And that's slowly beginning to filter through, whether it's a Wonder Woman or Black Panther or uh, you know, a TV show like Marvel's Runaways, where we'll see that greater diversity start to come through. And, I mean, Wonder Woman's a great success. Uh, Black Panther looks like it's going to be the business as well. And, you know, you'll, you will hopefully see that kind of that change. Well... It's a good time to be a, a comic book fan and a comic book film fan at the moment. Absolutely, it's unprecedented. Since, uh, I mean, you could go back to Blade or X-Men in 2000, Spider-Man, the Raimi film in 2002, but since that initial burst, there has been an unprecedented and exponential growth in the production of comic book movies and comic book TV shows, unlike anything we've ever seen. And I would never have thought it would have lasted this 15, 17 years that it's lasted, but it's... <laughs> Well, the mainstream critics certainly hate the idea of it, some of them at least. They're not really with the idea of it continuing. Well, I mean, what's interesting is we've started to see, uh, which we saw with the Western as well. I mean, comic movies are Westerns. I mean, kind of dressed up and with the gunslinger character elevated to near omnipotence. And Westerns were dismissed during their day. Um, no Western would have won the Best Picture Oscar. I mean, Cimarron, and that was it. But in the 90s, suddenly there was these sort of self-aware Westerns, like Unforgiven, like mm. uh, Dance with Wolves, which were incredible Man. films. And people went, oh, yeah, remember the Western? And we've started to see that, you know, with films like Logan, uh, where there are more self-aware or revisionist comic book movies produced, which take the sort of the classical conventions of the genre turn them on their head, subvert the audience's expectations. Uh, so you could have a film like Logan where the hero can describe superhero comics as, you know, ice cream for bedwetters. And uh, and that film you know, echoes, I mean, it explicitly makes nods to Shane, that 1955 Western. And you see that same trajectory here, that same genre trajectory, where the kind of the classical black and white morality gives way to more self-aware revisionist work. Yes, Deadpool, even actually Iron Man 3 we were talking about before. All of these show that uh, not only is it a successful genre in itself, but it can also encompass other genres. Mm. 
You know, you can have a horror superhero movie. You can have a comedy superhero movie. Well, a lot of Marvel's um, movies are kind of a different type of movie that happens to star superheroes. Like Ant-Man's kind of a heist movie, really. Mm. Um, and then, yeah, I can't think of another example. But there's, they're often... Yeah, Captain America's like a war movie. It's like a war epic. So I think a lot of the time it's tapping in on what we expect from those genres mm. and then kind of giving it a brush over of what's possible by having superhero in there. Yeah. Well, a science fiction movie, a space science fiction movie like Guardians of the Galaxy. Exactly. Space opera. Or Thor Ragnarok. You know. Yeah. They've got, got yeah, that going. The yeah. Scottish writer, Grant Morrison, who writes Batman and many other books, he just says superheroes are like monkeys. They make everything more <laughs> exciting. You know, you have a crime story or a space story or whatever, throw a superhero in immediately mm. it becomes more exciting. And so a lot of those genres, the classical action movies, the classical science fiction films of the 70s, 80s, 90s, they don't get made in the same numbers they used to. But where they, where they appear is in, in, as a kind of a sub-genre within the superhero movie. So the Tom Clancy espionage film is a Captain America film. The fantasy sword and sandal epic is a Thor film. Mm. I mean, Guardians of the Galaxy is... You know, it's pitched as a superhero movie, but it's more in common with Star Wars than it does Superman. This is where I, I think that the genre has got it over the Western. Uh, yes, we have seen occasional uh, Westerns that have, you know, we've had, um, my God, Billy the Kid versus Dracula. This, we've had that sort of thing going on there, um, but it's not really common. But with the superhero genre, they have actually managed to um, go into a different phase where they're able to vacuum up the other genres as well. Mm. They're perfect spreadable content, which is why we're seeing them in unprecedented numbers. These uh, film studios, broadcasters, comic companies are all by large conglomerates. They are looking for mutually beneficial relationships mm. between their subsidiaries. D- Time Warner owns DC Comics. They want a new TV show for their CW network. They're going to look to DC Comics to provide that, whether it's Supergirl, Flash or Arrow. And superheroes, kind of like Disney princesses, they're not specific to any one medium. I mean, you're only going to get one story out of Oliver Twist. You're not going to get a team park right out of Pride and Prejudice. But superheroes like Spider-Man and Batman, mobile phone apps, uh, Happy Meals, you name it, they'll spread across multiple media platforms. And that is one of the reasons why we have... Uh, seems unprecedented number of productions. It's a pretty amazing spread for something that's <laughs> that's been a lot of spent a lot of the time being counterculture and suddenly well I guess it's like everything, isn't it? Really with folk music becomes mm. protest songs and folk music becomes mainstream and then it gets taken over by recording companies and yeah. I, I, suddenly, it sounds like the ultimate evil plan, doesn't it? Yeah, we can rob the superheroes <laughs> of their power, their their mythic difference by just if we have such increased numbers of them, they become, you know, mundane. And but being a self aware uh, genre, then you get things like where you know where uh, they will have the superhero registration act, where they try mm. and weaponize the vigilantes for the state, and it yeah. all goes horribly wrong. So th- it's got a kind of a built in safety mechanism. I mean, it's one of the most enviable genres in that respect because the classical action film, let's say the Schwarzenegger and Stallone action film of the 80s, uh, that's an immediate R rating. It doesn't get uh, a huge wide audience. Whereas the superhero movie can tackle similar topics and themes and terrorists and so on. But because of its four-color reputation, because of its cape and cowl, it diffuses criticism that will be leveled against more... uh, sort of grounded fare. So they get to have uh, their cake and eat it too because they can make these allusions to 
in the case of civil war and the Sokovia Accords, uh, real world threats, you know, everything from 9-11 to whatever you like, mm-hmm. uh, you know, ditto uh, the collateral damage of Batman v Superman. But if anyone actually holds hmm. them to account, I mean, this happened a lot with the Christopher Nolan and Batman films, and says, mm-hmm. is this a right wing film? I mean, it seems right. And you go, oh, yeah, but it's just a superhero movie at the end of the day. And it, it allows them to kind of dodge those questions. Uh, so they get to you know, people can read into it and say, oh, this is really about the Bush era's use of uh, surveillance in the case of The Dark Knight. But if you read too closely, you can just say, but we shouldn't take it too seriously. <laughs> uh, and so that's a pretty enviable position to be yeah. in. Yeah. Just, I mean, just going back to that piece there with the uh, of worrying about um, collateral damage, mm-hmm. which, uh, which has actually had this very kind of interactive element in a couple of recent superhero movies. Okay, so we had mass destruction in um, Man of Steel, you know, with uh, the battle. Superman not doing like Christopher Reeve's Superman would have said, and so, the people, you know, let's take this outside of the city limits. Uh, then, of course, there was a, in reaction to the reaction against that in... Um, uh, Batman versus Superman, mm. then you've got them, oh, well, we'll make sure we hold this down by the Docklands where yeah. there's nobody there at the time. Not even Aquaman, which seems rather strange. <laughs> yeah. Perfect time to introduce him. But um, His contract wasn't there. His contract yet. wasn't there, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, that's where, I mean, the first proper superhero crossover was Marvel Comics 8 where the Human Torch, the traditional version of the Human Torch, not the Fantastic Four version, and Namor the Submariner had a mesh and had a dust-up and went across two issues during which they destroyed New York. Hmm. They toppled buildings like dominoes, and that continued for, for decades. It was a convention of the genre, and there, no one ever taught anything about it. Uh, I mean, I have issues with Spider-Man where he sees the World Trade Center, the Twin Towers, kind of collapse and explode, and he kind of doesn't take it terribly seriously because no. it was fantasy. And then when it became real, I mean, uh, that changed how they had to operate in the comics. The kind of careless destruction of downtown New York on a weekly basis had to be retaught and reconsidered. So you had to put qualifiers in like, oh, there, that office block was empty. Or, oh, uh, we fought in Central Park where there was no collateral damage. <laughs> or you took it head on like the Civil War comic that predates the, the film from 2006. You made it part of the premise of the, the story arc. And you created a uh, an organisation, a business called Damage Control, whose reason for being was to repair superhero damage to yeah. cities. Yeah, and leads into the villain of Spider-Man. S- Spider-Man, yeah. So it's, so it's, it's an amazing progression. Um, okay, one thing I did mean to ask you, the trolley problem, of the, eth- <laughs> the trolley problem of ethics. Mm-hmm. Yes. Uh, explain what that is and how does that apply to superheroes who can actually... Override it. I mean, the, the trolley problem has a long history, but uh, as it's kind of used mainly in kind of you know, uh, pop psychology and things like that, is that there are, uh, there's a train headed towards one person tied to the track. You can flip this, or rather, to five people tied to a track. You can flip a switch, thereby sending it on an alternate route where one person will be killed. Do you flip the switch and take on, you know, in that kind of utilitarian way, is the needs of the, the many out in weighing the needs of the, of the few and how complicit are you by having flipped that switch and this is a premise that's used in superhero movies all the time uh, the end of Christopher Reeve's first Superman is uh, do you save Lois or do you stop this uh, atomic bomb headed towards uh, the west coast uh, happens again in Spider-Man the first Sam Raimi Spider-Man Green Goblin atop the Queensboro Bridge Mary Jane in one hand a kind of cable car full of screaming kids 
uh, Batman Forever. Again, uh, Nicole Kidman in one tube, uh, Robin in the other. And of course, traditionally, they save everyone because that's what superheroes do, where they fly around the world uh, turning back time or whether they're, you know, some you know, carefully placed webs, but they manage to save everyone. So uh, superheroes, in a way, sort of uh, overcome the sort of you know, philosophical questions that would otherwise plague us. But that was until kind of, you know, uh, this more revisionist or self-aware or realistic turn. So if we take uh, The Dark Knight in 2008, one of the most memorable sequences is where the Joker has kidnapped uh, Batman's love interest, uh, Rachel Dawes, and the district attorney Harvey Dent. He has them strapped to explosives and opposite ends of the city, and he, you know, tasks Batman with going to save one, and Batman goes to save his love interest, but it's conf- but because, of course, it's the Joker, he actually goes to uh, save the district attorney, but in the end, he manages to save neither. Uh, his love interest dies, that district attorney is badly scarred, becoming the villain Two-Face, and that moment only works because we've seen this sequence multiple times. We've seen it since Superman, we've seen it in Spider-Man, we've seen it in previous Batman films, and we know that the hero saves everyone, because that's mm. what they do. And one of the reasons Dark Knight was so effective was because it took the conventions of the genre, it took the audience's expectations, and it turned them on their head. And that's why these kind of genre films like superhero movies tend to work so well, because they enjoy shorthand with the audience. They take, uh, if this were a quote-unquote original film, it, those moments wouldn't have the same resonance no. or impact because we're not primed to expect certain things and then we're not excited or surprised when those certain things don't happen or don't go the way we expect and that's the tension and also the excitement of something that's often dismissed as conventional but in many respects is uh, it's much more complex than that mm. since, since I actually have the Iron Man free disc in front of me that does remind me of that um Huge spoiler if you've never seen the film, but if you haven't seen it by now, you obviously don't care uh, that the Mandarin is actually an actor. Yeah, you know, great. I mean, that's that really for me that you know, that was a, that was the defining moment of um, superhero cinema that they could actually turn that on its head yeah. exactly like that. And of course, the casting was perfect because they cast Ben Kingsley mm. as a kind of a, an English thesp who traditionally plays villains when he ends up in these big budget things, <laughs> yeah. everything from Prince of Persia back to sneakers. So when I saw uh, he'd been cast as the Mandarin, I was like, oh. How predictable, how obvious. Mm. And then that, that kind of second act reveal where he's just a kind of a schlocky actor playing the role uh, works and uh, because we have, you know, because of who he is as a star, because of the genre he's now in, we have all these expectations and then, you know. Yeah, it's not what's inside the, the luggage the actor is carrying is not what we were expecting. Absolutely. Well, it's been fascinating. Liam, let's um, continue this at the ACME Superheroes Justice and Ethics panel at the ACME on uh, 6.30pm tomorrow night. And there are still tickets available, as far as I know. Like my X-ray vision is not turned on at the moment, which is just as well because, you know, it's just very dangerous in a confined space. And uh, thank you for coming in. Thank you guys for having me. And thank, thank, you. thank you also to Nick Adams for helping set up the interview. Yes. Let's be bad guys. Hi, this is Joss Whedon, creator of Serenity, Buffy and Angel. Welcome to New Melbourne, home of fish, fish-based activities and Radio 3 Triple R FM. Triple R, it's independent radio and it aims to misbehave. You have Blake Seven there, the uh, theme to the television show from the 1970s. Ah, Dudley Simpson, the 
genre composer who gave us Tomorrow People and Blake Seven and a large number of Doctor Who episodes as well as Moonbase 3, I think, the music for that too. Hmm. So, been around and Australian born as well. So, I wanted to uh, just memorialise his passing, born on the 4th of October in 1922 in Malvern East. Dudley George Simpson was his full name and passed away on the 4th of November in uh, Sydney, um, age 95. Um, a lot of that, um, I thought at the time, cutting-edge Doctor Who music from Planet of the Giants through all the way through to uh, the horns of Naimon and Sharda. <laughs> so many um, of those. Also note that... Um, Texas-born actor John Benedict Hillerman has passed away at the age of 84. Mm. Play uh, Jonathan Higgins on the television show Magnum P.I., even though he's a Texan. Ah. Mm. Got his accent from um, listening to tapes of Laurence Olivier read Hamlet. <laughs> <laughs> I was also in, the one, in one of the Wonder Woman episodes too, I think the one with the giant gorilla, and has portrayed Dr. Watson to Edward Woodward's Sherlock Holmes in Hands of a Murderer, as well as being in Blazing Saddles in Chinatown. So ah. two people of rel- relevance to the Zero G genre, gone but certainly not forgotten. All right. So. We're on to the Orient Express. Yes, hop aboard. Chugga, 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 chugga. If you are. If you, if you dare. dare. Yeah. Do you know, after <laughs> returning from my session yesterday, the train I was on stopped <laughs> between stations. You're like, oh, God. <laughs> Thinking, oh, okay. I was just waiting for um, uh, the best bit of murder on the Orient Express when uh, Chris Evans battles his way forward from the rear car of the train, <laughs> waiting for the axe works to begin with um, Dame Judy Dench and uh, Derek Jacobi, both really formidable warriors to <laughs> <laughs> I actually, I, I'm, I'm. This is one of those movies that I've seen and I really enjoyed, and I seem to have got off at the wrong station to all the other critics. Yeah, I had a little <laughs> browse. Um, I mean, look, this is a thing. I'm a big Agatha Christie fanatic. Oh, okay. Yeah, so like massive. I used to read them all the time. Um, I mean, obviously, I haven't read all of them, and their quality. I mean, some of hers are better than others, but her are mostly amazing, and her good ones are um, incredible. Um, so I was sceptical going into this because adaptations um, always get me a little bit on edge, <laughs> even when Branner's at the helm. But, yeah, I don't know. This hasn't been received as well as I would have imagined. Well, it is standing in very well-worn, <laughs> I was going to say well-worn shoes, and I'm thinking of Poirot there. <laughs> yeah. Shoe fetish is problem there. Um, but, you know, I mean, there's been a lot since this uh, originally was written back in the 1930s. Um, this is one of her most well-known this is, titles. Yeah, it's like Mousetrap, you know. Yeah. It's like, there's been so many of these. And here's the thing. Um, there may actually – I have to, we have to be careful here. There may actually be people who yeah. don't know how this turns out. I would think that I would definitely prefer not to reveal – Mm. Um, because I think part of it is, I mean, obviously I knew going in, you you were familiar with what the I've seen solution all, I've was. I've seen all the other adaptations yeah, so, sure. and read the book back yeah, in the yeah. you know, so. This is one of the early books of hers that I had read. Mm. So obviously I don't think we should spoil that because I think that's a big part of it. Yeah, apart I from mean, the Chris Evans fight. Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> another Chris, <laughs> another Chris. Agatha Christie. Yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> she's the best one. Yeah. I mean, it's pretty <coughs> self-explanatory in the title. I mean, there is murder. Yeah, on the so, famous train. Exactly. And then um, our old mate, Poirot. Hercule. 
Exactly. Clara. Not Hercules. Not Hercules. Uh, is uh, luckily on board to solve the caper. And in Christie's case, this, this plot actually riffs off an infamous crime committed in, 19, in the 1930s and also from her own experiences of being stranded on the Orient Express herself. Well, there So you can actually on. see that's kind of built in. And this is, look, this is clearly one of... Um, what Branner does best in terms of a vanity project. Yes. Um, I, I mean, have he a, cast himself a, as yes. Poirot. Mon Dieu. <laughs> <laughs> the famous Belgian. Yes, <laughs> along with Tintin. <laughs> uh, and, um, and I think that, uh, you know, I mean, I've watched some of his other movies, um, uh, Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, very similar kind of manic energy to part of this film. Yes. Uh, Poirot is clearly... One of the things I liked about it is that he, he explains that Poirot is on some kind of spectrum yeah. as well as a train, yeah. uh, rather like Sherlock Holmes. Yeah. I didn't feel personally that his embodiment of the character was to my expectations and that's based on what I've come to expect from not just other adaptations or folklore but from reading the books. I feel like his... Um, version of Poirot was a little bit more aggressive mm-hmm. <laughs> and a little less twee. A tiny bit, not a lot. Not, not. We're not talking about Guy Ritchie, uh, Robert Downey Jr., Sherlock Holmes. A tiny bit of an action hero. Yeah, a petite. A little, bit. yes, exactly. A little, little bit. But I didn't <laughs> feel. For me, I think my main problem with this, um, and I think it does a lot of things well, and it does a lot of things to, as you would be expected. Um, my main issue with this was actually his portrayal of Poirot, to be honest. Okay. Yeah. Mm. But that could just be because I have a very specific idea in my mind about yeah. what Poirot is. Do you more and lean towards Kenneth David Soup? Sort of a more... David Soup soup Chef. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's not even just that. I think it's an, it's a, it's an energy. Yeah. It's like um, original Dumbledore did not have the energy <laughs> that I had come to think yeah. of Dumbledore. Okay. So... I think that's just a personal, a personal thing. I, I've, I've moved between because it's about, about twenty different actors in television and movies and There's stage. There's a lot to keep track of in this. Yeah, of this, this particular character, uh, and no, I'm not going to go for all the other movies. And there's just been a lot, quite a few movies and television things and episodes. Oh, Christie's, of, yeah, Christie's work. Yeah, no, this particular property. And, oh, uh, I see. And yeah. Doctor Who has yeah, sent yeah, it up, yeah. and Red Dwarf, and oh, yeah. the Muppets. I would say it is probably the most popular yeah. and most probably overexposed, you could say. There's a couple of things I like. <laughs> actually, I'm in awe of his epic moustaches in this, <laughs> uh, which is actually not that far off, says he's scratching his own moustache, uh, far off um, uh, what Christie wrote in the first place, you know, about like he could cover Poirot's face and his moustache would still be visible. <laughs> I mean, the must, the moustache was good. I'm, yes. I'm going to give him that. It's good moustache. I, I like that... Um, in his characterization, he brought something of uh, Wellender to it. Mm. There's a little bit of a um, there's a tragedy in his own past, and and there's a sense of, <laughs> of world weariness. Well, there's lots of tragedies in Poirot's there. Place. Is but I I mean it's so uh, to oh how are we going to show that he's pained? Let's have him clutch the same photograph and say the same <laughs> refrain over and over again throughout the film. But the guy's just trying to have a holiday. I know. I know. <laughs> Give him a break. I, I will. You know, there's elements of it I did enjoy of his portrayal. That's true. And after this, we know he's going to be whisked off to the Nile. Yes. So they've all, they've <laughs> planted the seeds. For another. You, you cannot just go and have a break. You mm. cannot get, get a break Well, that's, that's the ongoing. That's mm. the ongoing, uh. But I'll tell you one thing. It's quite beautifully lensed, um, that opening sequence with 
It's a Turkish delight, basically. It's just <laughs> the, the wonderful, the train, the Hagia Sophia in the background, the, yeah. that light, the golden horn light. And, oh. and I will say, so I went and saw this, not intentionally, but I was quite pleased. I went and saw this in 70mm mm-hmm. um, at the Sun Theatre. So they don't, 70mm screenings aren't available in many theatres across Melbourne because you need a special 70mm projector, which is quite rare. And the Sun Theatre is actually the only one that's showing Murder in the Orange Express in 70mm. And you get a little program with it. And I will say it did look quite sumptuous in the 70mm. So. Mm. Yeah, all those frocks and costumes and the iconic uh, red uh, kimono fluttering yeah. down. The- and the contrast colours of the snow and everything. And I think it, it did look quite lovely. And he I certainly mean, plays with the camera moves, doesn't he? Yeah. Throughout this. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a closed train mystery. He gets outside as often as he can and, and does some quite daring things. Like there's a, a tracking shot that normally would follow the actors closely down through the train. He yeah. does it from outside. You barely see them. Yeah. Some he, people don't like that. He That's does some... Fair enough. Oh, really? He does yeah. some interesting stuff with glass and reflection and things mm. like that too, which, I mean, is a pretty obvious stock standard. You know, they're all fractured, their personality, blah, blah, blah. Um, but Over, I thought it looked overhead quite cool. Overhead shots too. The overheads were my favourite. I love a good overhead in a murder mystery. But you see, I actually feel... I felt like he was being a bit cheeky with some of that sort of stuff, like he was being a bit postmodern. People didn't like the outside train no, tracking No, no, no. They thought... Because they wanted... I think that some, some. I'm not, this is like I'm some people. Uh, being aware of the history of this as, as adaptations, you get uh, much more focus upon the individual all star cast, yeah. and they do have. You know, they got yeah. Judy Dench, Penelope Cruz, Derek Jacobi, Johnny Depp, Daisy Ridley. Daisy Ridley. It feels to me what they've he's actually done here is reined them in a bit. Yeah, and uh, some of the buzz is that it's reined reined them in too too far. Yeah. I actually think no. Actually, what you've got here is them used as an ensemble, as opposed to that usual all-star power cast. But I don't know. Maybe uh, I, maybe I'm on the wrong track there. But um, I did also particularly like a shot in this film. We'll call it the Last Supper shot. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and yeah, I yeah. thought that was a really good idea. Yeah, yeah. I agree. I mean, totally. Um kind of convoluted mm. in terms of the reasoning, but I think it was a great way to, to do that scene. Do you know what I missed? It's a good bit of um, misdirection on Christie's part. Uh, I, I missed um, a diagram of where everybody was in their compartments and stuff. That I think that would have guided the mystery up a bit more. Yeah, I think some of the, like, I have certain boxes that I like to be ticked in when I'm watching a murder mystery, and this one ticked off quite a few, but I think there's some fun stuff around that and a bit more discussion of the evidence and the actual you know, state of the body and, uh, you know, the wounds and things. It was in Yugoslavia, whatever stuff it to be. <laughs> I just, I wanted more of that and I actually yeah. think some of that stuff is more resonant when the solution, the sort of solution comes out mm. and I don't think they actually build that up as much for people who aren't as familiar with it. I think it could have been let in a little bit more and some of the rationale around it fleshed out more to have more resonance. Two things I don't miss from... Because uh, the last... I mean, the last big one was the television adaptation with David Suchet mm-hmm. uh, or Suquet, however you want to pronounce it. Um, he, his is, is very, very overlaid with his own... the actor's own personal um, uh, religiosity. Mm-hmm. Uh, I did not miss that here at all. Yeah, uh, yeah. So I'm glad to be quit of that. Um, and also, uh, I really like the way Branagh... <sighs> Managed to pull this out, the events, I'm trying to be careful here, as a tragedy. Yes, agree. I think he really managed to draw that aspect of it out. Yeah, and when, when you, you cut consider to a black and white flashback. 
<laughs> but I do agree. I think some of the emotional moments were played very well, mm. both direction and act, acting. Mm. It's like, um, you know, as I was saying, uh, the a murder is a stone that's thrown into a pond. There's the immediate death of the person involved, yeah. but the ripples spread out so far. Mm. That sounds like a pyro thing. And the lake will never be the same because, you know. Yeah, because it's got thing. rocks in it. Exactly. <laughs> and I think, I do think that maybe I'm being a bit hard on him in terms of his portrayal. Like there was a sense of whimsy about the way he went about playing Poirot. But um, I think, and I think everyone else did a great job. They didn't have much time or space mm. to do much. But there's, I mean, there's 12 key characters in this. Yes. So that's a lot. Well, a yeah, no, maybe. I was a yeah. I enjoyed it. I mean, I don't think it's um, amazing. I wasn't fully wowed by it, which I was a bit disappointed by because, as I said, I love Christy. But I don't think – I think it's fun. You know, it adds to the list of movies that have neon title cards. It's mm. a big thing that everyone's doing right now. Mm. Um, I enjoyed it. I think I think if you're a Christy fan, it won't hurt. Um, but it didn't wow me probably. Would be. I, I give it a – yeah, I'm kind of uh, – I give it a wee. You know, yeah. it's it's there. Um, I don't think it, I think it could be a lot better. Agree, but I think there's missed opportunities. Yeah, but I think it could be worse too, and it, it, oh, kept, it yeah. kept me entertained. Could be way worse. Way worse. <laughs> and again, you know, the um, the axe battle with Chris Evans just. But that's sublime. that's. I guess that's not really a good um, review either. When we're like, well, it could have been a bigger disaster. <laughs> yeah. Well, it, it could have been an actual train wreck. It could have been an actual a, train as opposed wreck. to a derailment. But I also love closed um, closed situation movies. Yeah, so, yeah. I mean, I really should have loved this more than I did. So I guess that's what I mean by missed opportunity. Yeah. Okay. It's on now at the cinema. And we're off now with yes. Astral Glamour, Joe Brandy coming up next. And we'll just um, fade out. Oh. This has been a podcast oh. from Free Triple R, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly oh. independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.